The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, it's an honor and privilege to be here this morning. Um, just, I don't know how often this gets said here in chapel, but I'm going to provide a trigger warning in advance. We're going to be talking about sin and its insidiousness and the response of the gospel to that, but I will be talking in practical terms about that, specifically in the relationship to abuse. So before I get, that, get to there, I want to provide a heads up. And it's necessary for us to address this question because Christianity claims to answer the question of the depths of sin, about the injustices committed by us and against us, and simultaneously to hold out the answer of the depth of God's grace. Christianity claims the gospel is a statement that there is no evil so far beyond the depths of God's sheer grace. This is an existential question for all of us. Now, you might not feel it we, until maybe you find yourself in a crisis or, or towards the end of your life as you're experiencing or wanting or craving divine forgiveness. But we experience now evil. We are both perpetrators and those who have been perpetrated against with evil. The question before us, the question that 1 Corinthians prompts, is what is the helpfulness of the gospel to us now? I'm going to telegraph to us all the answer to that in advance, which is the basis of our hopeful endurance is the faithfulness of God. So not too long ago, I received a call from a good friend in tears because one of their, uh, his wife's and his best friends and their small group had gone arrested for abusing people. This was stunning. This was a faithful Christian. And as the tears are coming to me over the phone, the questions that started pouring out were these. How did we not see this? This is so evil, so despicable. How, is this, how could someone hide this, lie about this? Was this not obvious to us? Are we blind? How, he did so many good things throughout life. How did this happen to him? How could someone so good do something so terrible? Was there ever any good in him? And if it could happen to him, if our good friend could do something so wicked, what's to stop us from becoming like him? I bring this up not to tokenize or trivialize their experience, but to remind us of this. Sin is insidious. It is sneaky and subtle and destructive. It is prevalent and corrosive. Sin turns us into victimizers and leaves us as victims. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is this is nothing to be unexpected. Nothing has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Sin is present and prevalent. It is a power that corrupts us, it shatters us, it maims us, and it is common to our experience. There's a banality to sin. It is so normal that we, we either just ignore it or we like to pretend that it's not as common as it is and we hide it away. And this this is what Christianity claims to answer, what the gospel of our Lord Jesus answers. That God provides grace and healing 
and a response to this. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have Paul tell us, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And the immediate context right before this is Paul is giving an example of Israel in the desert when they were wandering after their exodus from Egypt. And he says their sin, their idolatry there, was an example to you because it led to their destruction. The alternative to resisting sin and temptation on this side is destruction. Now immediately after these verses, Paul then goes on to say, but this, isn't, this should not be the case for you, church, for you, Christian, because you participate in the body and blood of Christ. And he's specifically referring to the example of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But what he's getting at is this. For the Christian, the alternative to destruction is not merely survival, but sharing in the life of Jesus. So on the one hand, we have sin and judgment and destruction. And on the other, we have Christ with his grace and his life. And the hinge between these two, between these two options, is what our verses this morning are addressing. Take heed lest you fall. There is no temptation that has overcome you that is not common and to which there is no escape. Be aware of yourself. Don't give in into temptation. Now there's a command there, an imperative for us as Christians, but that's not actually how the hinge turns. Yes, we should indeed resist temptation, but the solution that Paul is presenting is not our action. And if it was, we'd be in deep trouble. Otherwise, that would just make Christianity not actually offering anything of spiritual value beyond being a manual for pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not how we escape the destruction of sin. The hinge in these verses comes in verse 13 with these three words. God is faithful. The hinge is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He is the one who will provide an escape from the destruction. And because God is faithful, take heed. That means mind your soul. Guard your mind and your heart. Resist temptation. James, in his letter, tells us that sin works in our hearts by grasping our desires, good desires, and then using our cravings for the fulfillment of those desires to draw us down a terrible path to find that fulfillment. In our, in our culture, probably the best example of this, of course, is the temptation of the One Ring in Lord of the Rings. The temptation to power, for survival, to preserve your life, your family, your culture, your home, your neighborhood, your garden. The option set before the heroes is take the power and reap the destruction or endure and find life. The seed of sin lies in all of our hearts. And the temptation for us is to find the impulse and to fulfill that impulse, to fulfill that desire in an ungodly way. Growing up, I had a friend whose little sister was very annoying. She teased him. She bothered him. He and, and she was the favored child. His mom would look the other way. My friend had a cruel streak. 
So he liked to antagonize her back. He was bigger than her. He liked to kind of push her around when she annoyed him. And he loved, he told me, to hear her cries of anguish in his response. The pettiness of being vindictive, it brought him joy. The desire for justice to, to get his sister in line, he decided to fulfill that himself and in that had fallen into sin. And we have a good biblical example of this, don't we, in Cain and Abel, where God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door, waiting to consume him. Uh, I recently read a book by a civil rights pastor from the mid-20th century named Howard Thurman. The book is called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in this book, uh, Thurman describes as an analogy for racial resentment what happens in the hearts of children. So he gives this example. He says, this is, this is what black Americans' experience has been like. It's like there's a family with five kids. And the youngest child always is on the losing end. They come to dinner, there are four pieces of cake. It goes to the four oldest kids. It's time to pick a game, there are four options, and the four oldest kids get to pick. It's time to select a vacation destination, the four oldest, they get to pick. Eventually, the youngest child is going to think, it's not fair. I am always the one who is left out. And then the child complains to his parents. They tell him to stop tattling complains to the sibling that he thinks is most sympathetic. He's told, you're the youngest, you have no voice in this matter. Not allowed to complain, not allowed to have good desires fulfilled, not allowed to see justice met. And in the quietness of his bed at night, there he is allowed to let bitterness grow, resentment grow. Thurman's point is this. There is a good desire for justice, for fair treatment, for equity. There is a good desire, but inside of all of our hearts is the temptation to sin. There is good there, good desire that is being tempted and twisted. That seed towards sin is in all of us. The goodness is there as well, but the seed of sin will grow and twist and corrupt us. It is waiting, it is crouching to, as Paul puts it here, overcome us. This is why the apostle tells us, take heed lest you fall. What Solomon tells us in his Proverbs is this, pride goes before destruction. That means a haughtiness, a thought that this doesn't apply to me. I've got my ducks in a row. I will never be the one who falls into the path of destruction. But no temptation faces you except that which is common to everyone else. You're not special. You're not unique. Sin is crouching at the door, and it is insidious. This is why Paul tells us, take heed and resist temptation. God will always provide a way of escape. Now, there's an atheist, anti-Christian trope that goes something like this. The Christians only do good things to avoid being judged. And if the judgment wasn't there, we just go back to doing bad things. So we're actually all terrible people. 
And there's some truth to the latter part. Christians are terrible people. That's the whole point of the gospel. But the escape here that Paul is describing is not so that we avoid God's judgment. That's, that's true to an extent in this passage, but it doesn't address the seed of evil. And the way to escape the effects of sin, to resist temptation, is not a just saying no. Also true to an extent. Be like Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Resist temptation. But, but ultimately, the escape cannot be that. As Martin Luther put it in, in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. The escape is not some self-help idea where if we just make our spiritual beds, everything in our lives will be put in order. The escape, the resisting of temptation here is to escape the destruction due to sin, and that is not something that we can accomplish in our own power. Yes, giving in to sin, as Paul explains in this chapter, means invoking destruction on the one hand, justice. That, yes, that's true. But it is not our power that gets us to a place of healing. Jesus taught this in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he? What are, the, what are some of the petitions we are, we are instructed to pray to our Father? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are told to trust our God and to pray to our God to deliver us ultimately. To deliver us not only from the experience of temptation, but to deliver us from evil. That means rescuing us from the times in which we have been victimized by sin and the pressure to become victimizers. We are praying to our Father to deliver us from, ourse from ourselves. The escape that Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 10 is this. The faithfulness of God. Because God has provided for us salvation in Christ. Because God has provided for us rescue from the destruction, the destroyer that the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. Because God is providing for us life and grace in Jesus, we can resist sin. Because we have been rescued, we can place our confidence in the rescuer. Here, here's how Paul talks about this in a similar passage in Colossians chapter 3. Um, so I'm going to read these verses backwards. This is Colossians 3, verses 5 through 6 first. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We see here a very similar idea. Giving into temptation leads to destruction. But this begins with this phrase, put to death, therefore. Hopefully you've been taught in your, in your Bible classes, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is therefore. So if you go back two verses, we read this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And the order here matters. Our life has been joined to Christ's. Christ who died for our sins so that we might die to our sin. And since our life is hidden with Christ because it has been joined to him, we know that the wrath of God that is coming will not touch us. 
God has provided the way of escape. He has provided the way of rescue. It is Jesus. But precisely because our life has been joined to the life of Christ, we can fight. We can resist sin. This, this is called the mortification of sin, the killing of sin. Because God has been faithful to us in Jesus, we have been freed to endure sin and to resist it. In 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul tells us that God has provided a way of escape, it's this. Christ has hidden his life with ours. We have been joined to his life. He is the one who will deliver us from evil, who will rescue us from temptation. And precisely because that is the case, we have the freedom to resist sin. So the, the initial questions asked this morning is, how is it that Christianity addresses the insidiousness of sin, our experience of depravity, and present for us a reasonable picture of the grace of God? Well, what we see here for us who are victimizers, who are perpetrators of evil, who were called to put that to death is this. We actually can indeed resist sin. That might not sound like a profound statement because it's a very Sunday school kind of answer, but you can resist sin. You cannot sin. You can fight temptation and succeed. And when you fail, there is still hope. And that strikes out any conceit on our part. That our rescue is not based on our flexing of spiritual muscles, but upon what Christ did at the cross and in his resurrection. We are called here by the apostle to become aggressively self-aware of our sin, but not in a navel-gazing, not in a hopeless posture, because we should also simultaneously become aggressively self-aware of what Jesus has accomplished. This rules out despair for us. If, it's, if our hope in the face of sin is what we do, we will find ourselves in places of despondency because we'll never be doing enough. Our rule-keeping list will be growing longer and larger. All of our techniques for fighting temptation are going to become a burden that we cannot bear. But our hope for endurance is not your quality of spiritual muscle, but our Savior. It also rules out hedonism, on the other hand. I think as college students, you might particularly be tempted down this path. Go with what feels good, what's enjoyable, what your friends are up to. Why does it matter? We're all sinners anyways. And this feels nice. But if our life is hid with Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then resist temptation. The way that the, the apostle ends this verse tells us that we might be able to endure the temptation. That's not a pleasant word, endurance. You only have to endure hard things. You only have to endure that which stresses you. But the, the logic that the apostle presents for us is this. God provided a way of escape for us, life in Christ, and so we can endure. 
God is faithful in delivering you from sin. In this present reality, your experience now, it might not feel like it all the time, but the hope here of endurance is towards the goal, the end of the race. You might stumble, but the hope that Paul is presenting is that Christ will carry you. For those of us who have been sinned against, who have been victimized, the logic that the Apostle is presenting to us here is that we are not to just ignore our pain. The solution to the hurts that we have endured, the, the maiming of sin, is not just powering through or, or coping. Now, God has presented for us common graces, tools to deal with, with our, our, our suffering. So if, if that's where you're at, please take advantage of the Oasis Counseling Center. But what Paul tells us is that we will be able to escape from the destruction that sin has accomplished. That the harm done is not just something that we will learn to cope with or ignore or power through, but will be healed. We've been preaching in my church through the first letter of Peter, and this past Sunday we were in one of my favorite sections in 1 Peter 2, where there we're told that Jesus in his own body on the tree bore our sins, so by his stripes we can be healed. That's how the deliverance from evil occurs. Christ died in his body so that we might find life in ours. That's what Paul was getting at in Colossians chapter 3. Our life has been hid with Christ on high. But we're here now. We experience the frailties and sufferings of life now. But the way out, the way out of that shame, that brokenness, of all that hurt, is through what Christ has accomplished and to endure to the end. Now, if, if we live in a very exclusively material world, meaning that an atheistic world, that all that we can present as a solution to the suffering of sin is therapy, coping to deal with it, you can't undo or truly heal. You can't truly heal in that circumstance from sin committed against you. Or if we live in a vaguely spiritual world, the only option before you is some sort of effort to release or ignore the sin accomplished against you or to channel that energy into social action. Now these things might be helpful and good, but the Christian answer is this. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, which means that sin and all of its effects will be healed. That Christ has indeed delivered us from evil and will deliver us from evil. Time might make it easier to push through pain and shame, but it is Christ that heals all wounds. This is the gospel message that Paul is presenting for us in 1 Corinthians 10. That our life is participation with Christ's life. That his body, which was broken, was broken so that yours might be healed. That's not an easy answer for those, who us, for those of us who have been victimized by sin. It's a long answer. It's an answer that says, endure. Do not fall into sin. Do not fall into despair. But we endure not on the basis of our own strength and our own ability to power through and our own ability to just overcome, but we can endure because God is faithful. That is the hope of the gospel, and that 
is the Christian answer to how the depth of grace meets the depths of sin. Because nothing that has overcome us has done so in a way that surprises God or is unique or one of a kind. And God is faithful. He will provide for us escape in healing. And he has because he has given us the life of Jesus. So let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for all that he has done for us. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you'd be at work in all those who are gathered here this morning. Heal hearts, draw those facing sin to repentance, provide deeper understanding of grace and life in Christ. We pray that you would bless the students here in their studies, that in the, the cold rain, that they wouldn't get too drowsy and bored, that you provide them energy and focus. Be with the teachers as well. God, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.